Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another Baseball America Playoff Podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer, joined today by J.J. Cooper to break down everything that took place in the ALCS and NLCS, and of course, preview the upcoming World Series between the Braves and Astros. J.J., just like we all predicted, I think a lot of people predicted the Astros, and rightfully so. I'd be surprised if many people out there picked the Braves to get to this point. I, 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 I don't know how you could imagine the Braves being in this position if you were talking in June, if before the season, I mean, sure, they were a, a team that has perennially won the NL East in recent years, but everyone seemed to think that the Mets, that the Nationals have won the World Series recently. There was other teams who seemed more logical even in the East, but once Soroka didn't come back, once Ronald Acuna went down, once this team basically battled to 500 was the goal for most of the first two, three months of the season. I don't know how at that point one could have said, oh, well, logically the, the Braves are going to, they're going to be the team in the NL more than the Giants or the Dodgers or the Brewers. We could go down the list. And here we are. And not only did it, but did it with a little room to spare and credit to them. Also, I think you also say credit to the Giants, credit to the Cardinals. They, everyone before this, every series before this one for the Dodgers took a little more out of them. And by the end of it, and please do not hear me as saying, oh, the Dodgers would have won it without this. I'm not saying that, but I am saying we should acknowledge not having Kershaw, not having Muncy, losing Justin Turner. And then at the end of the day, which may be the thing that kind of ends the, oh, use your starters as relievers, not being able to send Max Scherzer to the mound in game six. Bueller was fine. Bueller was not terrible in that start. But to not be able to do that, it, it did leave them limping at a time that the Braves, who have every right to say, oh, we're beat up, we've lost stars this year, they figured out a way around it. Absolutely. We're going to dive into that NLCS review a little bit deeper, but I actually want to start with the ALCS. That series wrapped up first. The Astros defeating the Red Sox in six games. The Astros were down two games to one. In your own words, their pitching situation looked dire. They were without Lance McCullers. Luis Garcia left his first start with a knee injury. Framber Valdez got shelled in game one. A lot of things were not looking great for the Astros. Then they came back and simply pummeled the Red Sox into submission. We talked about this offense, just how good it is. The thing that jumps out to me, JJ, the Astros this postseason have scored 67 runs in 10 games. They're averaging almost seven runs per game. And we knew this was a great offense. And that's what carried them to victory here. Now, I do want to talk about Framber Valdez and Luis Garcia's game five and six starts and why they're so important. But we have to start with this offense. Averaging seven runs a game against the caliber of pitching you see in the postseason. This was the highest scoring offense in baseball this year. I mean, this 
offense, relentless just doesn't seem to cut it how good it is. It's almost hard to find the right adjective to describe. If it wasn't for, I'm now going to say something not intending to be controversial, but I fear that it may be perceived that way. If not for the cheating, the sign-stealing scandal, would we be talking about this as one of the great lineups of all time? And I say that because you can have a great lineup for a year, but, and I know that Springer was part of it now, he's not. Jordan Alvarez has joined during this process. But when you talk about Altuve, you talk about Bregman, you talk about Correa. At this point, you talk about Michael Brantley. You, 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 have, you talk about Yuli Gurriel. This Astros team has put up, they just wear teams down year after year. And if they do pull this off, to look at what they've done over a, what now, five, six-year stretch, in an era of free agency is pretty remarkable. Absolutely. And again, this Astros offense, they make a ton of contact. They hit for a ton of power. They don't strike out. They're deep. Most years, at least one to eight. Normally, sometimes the nine spot isn't great. But you're right. And that's one of the things with the sign-stealing scandal is it does take away from the recognition of how good these players are. And both things can be true at the same time. You can be tremendously talented and have cheated. That is the case of the Astros. These are tremendously talented players who objectively did cheat and won a World Series because of it. But I think you can also acknowledge the talent these players have had and demonstrated these last few years. When you look at this 2021 offense in particular, there's absolutely, you mentioned a bunch of guys who are carryovers from that 2017 team, Correa, Bregman, Altuve, Gurriel. But there's also a lot of guys who were not a part of that. Kyle Tucker had his big breakout year this year, Jordan Alvarez. They've produced some guys who were not considered top, top prospects. And Jake Myers and Chaz McCormick's of the world who have come up and held down center field. So there's a lot of talent on this team. And I think we can acknowledge that. And just seeing what this offense does to teams on an almost nightly basis, it's really, really, really difficult to hold them down for long. We've seen that, that you might be able to hold them down for a little bit, but to hold them down over nine innings, it's very, very difficult, and that's a testament to them. With that, JJ, I do think the turning point in this series, the Astros were able to piece together game four, Granke and Javier, and win that game to come back and tie it two to two. But the way Framber Valdez came back in his game five start and just simply dominated the Red Sox in every way, and then to have Luis Garcia come back, worried about his knee, what's it going to look like, and he comes back throwing harder and takes a no-hitter into the sixth inning, if you're the Astros... These two starts were so, so, so important for the Astros' outlook, not just in winning the ALCS, but moving forward, because all of a sudden, you go from not knowing what you're going to get from these two to feeling really, really good about what they can give you, especially in lieu of the news that Lance McCullers Jr. will once again be out for the World Series. What Luis Garcia did was amazing to me, because again, if he had just gone out and been okay, that would have been huge for the Astros. And would have been huge going into the World Series to say, hey, okay, his knee is good enough that he can produce reasonably solid starts. To go out there and dominate like he did is massive because that's the Astros are going to need that in the World Series. The, on paper, if everyone's healthy, this is a better Astros team than this Braves team. But it's not on paper and not everyone's healthy. You just hit the thing that McCullers is out. McCullers is not going to pitch by all accounts. And they are going to have to piece together some of this. The way for them to piece this together starts with having Luis Garcia 
give two solid starts where they don't worry about those days. And I, I feel like they feel pretty good about that right now because Luis Garcia went out there and shoved in, to, in a clinching game. I think the thing that deserves a lot of credit here, Dusty Baker, I actually wrote about this in last year's ALCS, contrasting Dusty Baker versus Kevin Cash and knowing when to let your starters go versus automatically pulling them. And I thought what Dusty Baker did in game five was very, very important in the sense that, as we mentioned, the Astros kind of had to piece together game four. And there were some moments there in game five where if you're the Astros, it's one nothing through five innings. We've seen managers, especially in this postseason, get antsy and pull a starter. Hey, you've given us five good ones. You're about to see the order third time through. We know your pitch counts low, but we just don't want to risk it and go to the bullpen. And I actually thought Dusty Baker deserves a lot of credit for sticking with Valdez there. Again, in the context of the day before, you had to piece together. You had to use six pitchers. Graveman threw two. He was going to be down. Presley, you don't want to have to throw him back-to-back days. Javier threw three. He was going to be down. I mean, there were just a lot of cases here where you see managers today would have pulled Valdez, said, hey, you gave us five. It's one nothing. We're going to turn over to the bullpen here. And I thought Dusty Baker did the absolute right thing in keeping Valdez in in that context, and he was rewarded for it. Framber went out. He pitched great, kept his pitch count low, worked quickly. I mean, 93 pitches in eight innings. And that also allowed the Astros to kind of reset have their bullpen fully ready to go for game six. We've talked a lot in the past about Dusty Baker and his postseason snafus, and they certainly have existed. But I actually think this is a case he deserved a lot of credit for making the right call and doing something that, strangely enough, has become against the grain in the way teams are managed in the postseason. But he did the right thing, and he was rewarded for it. The Astros were able to come out, and Luis Garcia, five and two-thirds, one-hit ball. Then the bullpen came out fresh. They were rested, three and a third to polish it off, only allowed one hit the rest of the way. I think it's important to point out that Dusty deserves credit there. And look, if your guys are dealing, let them go. And especially if you are coming off a day where your bullpen was exhausted, there's another team out there that can learn from that. But in this case, I just want to highlight that for Dusty Baker. And I think if you're the Astros, you feel pretty good about the way this postseason was managed as well. And that's where I I just think everything's clicking for them right now. The thing that stands out to me on both, if you look at both managers, yes, they're as people have liked to point out, they're older guys. You know, these are the, the, the senior citizen crew, you know, that are leading their teams to the World Series. But on top of that, so often it is easy to focus on the minute in day-to-day of a 162-game season, and even more so when we get into the postseason. And I look at both Dusty Baker and Brian Snicker as being really good managers and they are really good managers more in kind of the, the Bobby Cox realm, which is a happy, productive clubhouse where players are relaxed, comfortable, motivated, know that they're, they feel comfortable that their manager is backing them, that they will be put in situations to succeed, that they'll also be given some opportunities to show that they can succeed. I do think has significant benefits over the course of a long season. I feel like both of these managers do that and they do that very well as a general rule. And I say as a general rule, because if you want to tweet at me that you can find an example where it happened, otherwise it's a long season. I'm sure there are, but both of these guys are guys who emphasize harmony. Um, 
again, a relaxed nature to their clubhouse. Not that they don't have discipline, but that they, they're going to sometimes even take a game in uh, – Snicker especially, I feel like, is sometimes going to have a game in the regular season where the fans go crazy because he leaves a, he puts a reliever in that they don't want to see in the game. And they would rather the reliever that's been used the last two days or why are you giving this guy an opportunity and all that. And there's often a, like a longer term focus than just today's game, which is hard to do in today's game, but it's a 162 game season. You cannot focus every day on the only thing that matters is winning today's game. And I think that both these managers do that very well. I'm a fan of both these managers. I think they're among the better managers in baseball. I've known Snicker since, as I've said on this podcast before, he was covering, I was, when I was covering the Macon Braves, he was a manager of two of those Macon Braves teams. And you could see it at that level. This was a guy who, who, who got the best out of players. And I think you're seeing that from both of these managers. And a lot of that's experience and feel and understanding. You have to know your players. JJ, I do want to talk about Jordan Alvarez was absolutely on fire during this series, won the ALCS MVP award, hit 441 to 1329 OPS. You were on him. You were writing the Astros prospect handbook chapters at the time. And we saw him come through Bowie's Creek and he was a physical specimen, but he didn't put up great numbers that year. And a lot of people dismissed it, but you were on it that it was because he was hurt and when healthy, he is capable of doing some real, real damage. What do you remember most about Jordan Alvarez as a prospect? You wrote him up many years in a row. We had him in our top 100 two years in a row. I ranked him the PCL top prospects two years in a row. So he was a, a known prospect, but credit to you. You were on him way earlier than a lot of other people. Power and ability to control the strike zone makes up for a whole lot. I, I it's, a, it's a type of a phylum of players we like to talk about as kind of maybe stupid to call them phylums of players, but it's a phylum of players that to me, the success rate is really, really good with. And especially if you have a little bit of adaptability with your swing to go with it. Aaron judge is the guy who's kind of in this realm. Also the, I, I think I comp both of them at some point to Richie Sexton. And in hindsight, both of them are better than Richie Sexton, but I like that. That's kind of a formative player for me, like of this type, the, Big guy who, okay, he's going to strike out because when you've got guys this big, a strike zone, there's going to be holes. But they'll draw walks and they'll hit the ball a mile and a half and they can do so regularly. I do think that Jordan Alvarez, if he can stay healthy, the best is still yet to come. If you told me that Jordan Alvarez is going to have a year where he's an MVP candidate would not shock me, which admittedly I know it is difficult to be an MVP candidate when you're really a DH and he's really a DH. That was the, the thing that you could get focused on when he was coming up through the minors was he wasn't that great of an outfielder. He wasn't that great at first base. And he probably needs to be a DH because he is a little injury prone and putting him out there every day probably limits how many games you're going to get out of him. But if a guy can hit like this, just don't care. You just, and we're seeing this to some extent with Kyle Schwarber, who's now out of the playoffs, but Kyle Schwarber has always been a guy who the question was, where is he going to play? And the answer is there's not a great answer to that question, but at the best, at his best, he's going to draw walks and he's going to hit for power. Jordan Alvarez is the better version of that. Jordan Alvarez is the better hitter than Kyle Schwarber, but it's always stood out with Jordan Alvarez he not only, the other thing that always stood out with Jordan Alvarez to me was his, it was all fields power. 
Jordan Alvarez was just as comfortable driving a ball to the opposite field, often for doubles or homers, as he was yanking it down the line. We also saw him do some damage against lefties. And again, I remember seeing him 2017 in Bowie's Creek, and you saw the physicality. You saw some of the hard contact. His slugging percentage that year was 393, and that's where it was, okay, if he's this big and that's the power, what is it going to be? But like I said, you were on it that it happened because he was injured. Next year goes out and very, very clearly has tons of power. The comparison that's always worked for me, I shouldn't say always, that once it became clear, okay, there it is, is Carlos Delgado. The look, the swing, the power, and you look at what Carlos Delgado did his age 24 season. Alvarez is, this is his age 24 season. He's still very young. Alvarez is way ahead of where Carlos Delgado was. And you look back on Carlos Delgado's career and the dude finished with 473 career home runs was one of the best players in baseball for a long time. So that's one that works for me there. And it's been really cool just to track as his progress has developed what he's become. JJ, I want to dive into the NLCS real quick. The Braves beat the Dodgers four games to two. And you kind of hit on this earlier in the intro. And there's no question, the Dodgers were absolutely hit hard by injuries. But I think you have to give the Braves credit here. The Dodgers only had three healthy starters. So did the Braves. And the Braves used their starters a lot more intelligently than the Dodgers did. They were much better about how they deployed them. But the thing that really stood out to me is I kind of went back and dove back into the series a little bit. Obviously, I was out there uh, covering a lot of these games live. You look back at the overall series numbers, the Dodgers actually had a higher on base percentage and slugging percentage than the Braves in the series. They had more walks, fewer strikeouts. And then the Dodgers pitchers actually also had a lower ERA and whip than the Braves in the series. And that surprised me a little bit. Really what this came down to is the Braves timely hits first and foremost. I mean, they came up big in big spots over and over and over again and great defense. And I addressed this a little bit earlier in the series, but I actually thought it was appropriate in game six, it ending with Dansby Swanson making a really nice play at shortstop. We saw Austin Riley handle a really bad hop, get a throw off, Freddie Freeman pick it out. The Dodgers made so many defensive mistakes in the series. It wasn't always counted as errors, but whether it's bad jumps, whether it was drops, just a lot of mistakes the Braves really limited their mistakes. They made a few on the base pass, but timely hits, great defense. And I mentioned the Dodgers had higher numbers than them offensively and lower numbers than them pitching wise, but it was close enough that it became some of that marginal stuff. And in the Braves case, I really think the timely hits and the great defense give them a lot of credit. They beat the Dodgers and that's really how they did it. Those two things were what put them over the top. Uh, The first two games of the series should have been Dodgers wins and they were the Dodgers were down 0-2, even though they, as you said, the timely hitting, the defense were the differences there because the Dodgers had way more base runners. They just didn't do anything with them. And you also have to throw in, Eddie Rosario had one of those moments that they do happen. Like, formative one for me, I'll go back. Mark Lemke, 1991 World Series. If you are a Braves fan or you are a, a baseball fan of my age you probably remember this if you are younger you might be going mark lemke who but mark lemke hit 417 with i uh, was 10 for he was 10 for 24 with a double three triples 417 462 708 in those six games which when you say okay so that's really nice i i do want to point out that mark lemke his career high in triples in a regular major league season was five he had three in the post in one World Series. He was like a career 240 hitter. It, it all came together for him at this perfect moment. And by the way, it wasn't even that this was some amazing clutch hitter. For the entirety of Mark Lemke's career, he was 270, 335, 353 in the playoffs. 
that was fine, but it wasn't. Eddie Rosario just had one of those moments where it all came together at the perfect. Eddie Rosario has always been able to hit. There's never been a question of whether Eddie Rosario can hit. That said, Eddie Rosario turning into Ted Williams or Barry Bonds for a series is the kind of thing that wins you an NLCS because it, it's the easiest. You, you can make an argument for Tyler Madsick, who had an amazing game six as well and pitched in five of the six games in the series. But it is the easiest MVP I've seen in a while from the standpoint of you really did have a guy who you said, you know what, if they didn't have this guy, I don't think they win this series. That's what Eddie Rosario did. Yeah, absolutely. My version of that is Adam Kennedy in the 2002 ALCS. And again, he was a good player, hit over 300 that year, but hit seven home runs the entire season and never hit more than nine in a season. Goes out and hits three home runs in the clinching game five, won ALCS MVP that year. And even the series before against the Yankees, hit 500. I mean, guy at the bottom of the order who's considered a, a complimentary role player goes out and hits 500 in one series, then hits three home runs in a game to clinch the series in game five. Yeah, I mean, this is when players who we know are good players, but if they can step up to another level, it, it makes a huge difference. This Braves team, again, we've talked about it after August 1st, had the third best record in the majors behind only the Dodgers and Giants through the end of the regular season. A 667 win percentage. This team's been playing great baseball for a while now. Uh, they're 7-3 and three so far in the postseason. I do think that's important to point out. A lot of focus was put on the loss of Ronald Acuna, and for good reason. He is a superstar, one of the game's best talents. But it's not like this Braves team was a one-man team. Freddie Freeman, Ozzy Albies, Austin Riley were three of the best players in baseball at their respective positions. You still had Max Freed. You still had Ian Anderson. Ian Anderson missed some time, but he came back. You still had Charlie Morton. You still had a really, really good starting trio of pitchers right there. We've talked a lot about the additions they made at the deadline, bringing guys like Rosario and Soler and Jock Peterson, Adam Duvall, who are all solid everyday starters. This is a talented team. It's not like this is a one-man team. And I think some of the conversation about, oh my gosh, they lost Ronald Acuna and they're here. I can't believe it. I think kind of undersells how good the rest of the players on the Braves are, and especially once they reinforced it at the deadline. But I do think one other guy we do have to talk about here is Tyler Matzik. He's been absolutely lights out this postseason, appeared in every game but one. And his performance there at the end of game six is really what clinched it for the Braves. And JJ, you were around, he was coming up as a prospect and I was too. It's kind of funny, even here in Southern California, a lot of scouts talk about Tyler Matzik and his performance in the 2009 CIF Division I championship game at Angel Stadium as the greatest individual high school pitching performance they've ever seen. Pitched Capistrano Valley to a CIF title, one nothing game, shut him out. And he's been through a lot, ups and downs. I remember seeing the good in him as a prospect in Modesto, seeing the bad in him as a prospect. Uh, I was out of baseball. I actually remember our annual spring training players to watch series that we do. Before the COVID shutdown last year, I was able to talk to some scouts who mentioned, you know what, keep an eye on Tyler Matzek. He's in camp as a non-roster invitee. He looks really good. I think the Braves might have something. And what he's become after everything he's been through, it truly is remarkable. It is remarkable. And I, things I remember, he went out and really struggled early in his, you know, his first round pick of the Rockies went out and there was a point not long into his career where the Rockies having kind of run out of other options, sent him back home during the season to work with his, his, the pitching coach that he had worked with as an amateur because they were 
out of other ideas. He, it was that bad. It had kind of fallen apart. To his credit, it, it is one of those reminders for one thing that especially when it comes to pitchers, pitching development is not often linear. It comes in fits and starts and it can happen. I, I love indie ball, now partner leagues. This is an example of what partner leagues can do is you had somewhere for him to go, the Texas Air Hogs, and kind of help get back right. And you watch him now, that is everything you are looking for in a setup man right now. And I mean that like if you said, because he's not their closer, but describe for me a lefty setup man. It's a guy who comes in in key situations and you feel confident he's going to figure out a way out of it because he can miss bats. Because in that situation he came into in game six, there was no good scenario for the Braves in that situation unless you got strikeouts. And that's exactly what he did. I think it was, what, two on, no outs, and he gets out of it with no damage. That's You're not even expecting that when he comes into the game. You're just hoping that he limits the damage to do what he did. And he's to do what he did in game six, having pitched in game one, two, three, four, having pitched also in every game of the NLDS for them as well, that's even more remarkable. That's also when you say, what are you looking for in a setup man? Ideally, you want a setup man who can pitch pretty much every day without much degradation to their stuff. Tyler Matzik raises his left hand and says, that's me. And especially goes and strikes out Albert Pujols, Steven Souza Jr., Mookie Betts, three right-handed hitters. Again, just overwhelm them. JJ, we've talked a lot about the Dodgers. I don't know if we need to rehash this. I think after this, all I'll say is I hope they do an organizational top-to-bottom review of the decision-making processes in the postseason about which pitchers they use, how often they use them. Clearly, they've not properly taken into account the effects of fatigue on pitchers. Otherwise, I don't know how you use Julio Urias three times in seven days. So we'll see what they're able to figure out. But I think if you're the Dodgers, the number one thing this offseason, aside from the free agents they have to resign, which we'll get into, they need to do a top-to-bottom organizational review of their decision-making processes and what they need to fix because they keep making the same mistakes. In terms of what's next for the Red Sox and Dodgers, You always expect the Dodgers to be really, really good, but they are losing potentially in free agency Clayton Kershaw, Kenley Jansen, Max Scherzer, Corey Seager, Chris Taylor, plus some other guys, Corey Knable. Uh, There's a team option on Joe Kelly they're likely to decline. And you look at the Red Sox and they're losing Eduardo Rodriguez, and that's big, and Adam Ottavino, and that's pretty much it. Uh, There's a mutual option on Kyle Schwarber, a team option on Christian Vasquez they, they have to pick up. But the Red Sox are losing a lot less than the Dodgers. Sure, but the Dodgers also have shown time and time again, we don't know who it will be. But for one, they spend money, which is very important to be able to get through these things. And two, they also, it's not perfect, no team is, but they have been able to find and develop players into larger roles. Like, I know that we're going to, it's easy to think with Gavin Lux and remember kind of his misadventures in center field in this series, but it would not shock me in any way that let's say Corey Seager does leave and they have Trey Turner and Gavin Lux as their middle infield next year. There's a lot of teams that would beg to sign up for that kind of situation. And I mean, one thing I did want to go back to your point, as we've said, as I've said with this, with all of this, what they did did not work out. I agree with you. They need to reassess what they did. It did not work this postseason. They went to the starters relieving well, probably too often, but 
they are also coming off of having won it all last year. So they need to, they need to both reassess, but also they are in a situation where they have made it to the World Series twice in the last four years, and they've made it to the NLCS three of the last four years, that this is a team that is still in a really good space compared to the vast majority of teams out there. And like when I look at even the NL West, I'm more concerned if I look at it as whether the Giants can do this again than I am whether the Dodgers can do this again, because I've got a decade of track record with the Dodgers of saying they keep figuring out how to do it time after time after time. There's no question. The Dodgers, you expect them to be competitive every single year. They have the resources to do so. They have the talent to do so. And there's no reason to doubt they'll remain competitive moving forward. And the Red Sox as well, as we talked about, they're not losing a whole lot. There's a lot of talent to work with. They have some more coming up. So we fully expect both these teams to be competitive moving ahead. But for now, we have a World Series, the Braves and the Astros. JJ, we're going to break it down here as soon as we get back from this break. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. What I love about using Indeed is how it does a lot of that organizational work for me. I can sort through candidates. I can respond to them. I can schedule interviews all through Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses, including Baseball America, that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Just go to Indeed.com slash Baseball America right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And we are back. All right, JJ, looking ahead at this World Series, one of the interesting threads here is both the Astros and Braves had tremendous farm systems in the middle of last decade that really formed the baseline for these teams we're seeing now. You wrote about both these farm systems in the Prospect Handbook for multiple seasons. The Braves and Astros were the numbers two and three farm systems in baseball, respectively, in 2016. The Braves and Astros were the numbers one and four farm systems, respectively, in 2017. So back-to-back years, these were top five farm systems, 2016-2017. And then the Braves were the number one farm system in baseball for the second year in a row in 2018. The Astros dropped out of the top 10 that year, but they were still number 11. So both of these teams had tremendous farm systems, multiple seasons in a row. What do you remember most about each of these as you were writing them up? So with the Astros... The bats came along and there was a stretch of time where I don't know another way to put it, but basically we had a stretch where you had these Astros pitchers who looked really good and they would be turned into trade chips. And then they would kind of, in many cases, fall apart. Joe Musgrove is the one who did turn out, but, and so then we kind of got to this point 
where, and let's be clear, there's a lot of anti-Astro anti feeling, not just among fans, but, you know, in the industry as well, when, when Lunau was running things and all, they were not a particularly well-loved organization out there. Um, and so there was a kind of a running thread that said, the Astros can develop hitters, but I'm not so sure. I, and I also think they can develop pitchers who look like good trade chips, but I'm not sure if they are guys that you really want to develop. Can they really develop a starting pitcher, you know, in particular? And you look at it now, and the thing that stands out to me, the reason that this Astros team is back, is able to do this again, is really largely based around the fact that they brought up this core of hitters. Altuve was already there before they even started the rebuild. They drafted Carlos Correa under Bobby Heck. They drafted Alex Bregman with basically the, you know, Michael Elias and the new group under Lunau. They, they traded for Jordan Alvarez before he ever played a game for the Dodgers. They developed this hitting core, Kyle Tucker, first round pick. But then what also happened is you look at this team now and its pitching staff, they pretty much threw an entire bullpen of guys into on-the-job training last year that were largely homegrown. You look at what we just talked about, from Valdez and Luis Garcia, homegrown. Those are guys where the Astros' ability to develop pitching and develop guys who have had big league success, that's what's allowed them to get back to the World Series this year. I, they, yes, they went out earlier and got the Verlanders and they got the Zach Greinke's and they did all those things. The team that, that, that if McCullers was healthy, their rotation would be McCullers, Valdez, and, you know, I think Luis Garcia would be part of that. Those are three homegrown guys. Jose Arquiti so as well. Jose Arquiti too. All four of them. Those are homegrown guys. And that's something that very few teams can say. And that's the thing that stands out with them. You flip it to the Braves. It, it gets glossed over. The Braves also were hit for cheating in a different way. But while building an incredible farm system, their general manager was banned from baseball. But they had one of the best runs of international signings and development. Because if you develop a Ronald Acuna and an Ozzy Albies in a short period of time, that is a great starting point. But give them credit also. They, have, they drafted high school pitchers in the first round when teams basically, most teams treated drafting high school pitchers in the first round, you would rather be juggling with, you know, radioactive uranium. And they were able to, they, it was safer to do that than it was to draft high school pitchers. And they drafted Ian Anderson. They drafted Mike Soroka. But also on that, they also acquired Max Fried, another, you know, it's a lefty. So it's high school right-handers, I should say, first rounders are the ones that are the most dangerous it's viewed. But they have this, group of high school pitchers who all developed and then you throw around that Austin Riley the the amount of people who thought coming out of the draft that Austin Riley was going to be a hitter much less an impact big league hitter he was viewed as a pitcher by a lot of people coming out of the draft the Braves were like nope he's a hitter and now he's a hitter we believe that his body will not get worse his body will get better as a pro 
which is exactly what happened, which meant instead of him being this slugger who has to quickly move to first base and is blocked by Freddie Freeman, he ended up being this star who developed this year who's capable of playing third base, which all of a sudden gives them one of the best infields in baseball. And to me, that both, team, both of these teams have absolutely played the trade market. They've absolutely done what they need to do that way. But they've also found homegrown talent that they needed to, to make this work. Absolutely. Both these teams, the core is homegrown. We've talked about the Astros and how, especially after losing Garrett Cole to free agency after the 2019 season, Ben Justin Verlander goes down, needs Tommy John surgery before the 2020 season. The development of these pitchers is what extended their run. JJ, as we look into this series, how they match up is interesting. It's not a huge surprise. The Astros beat the Braves in most offensive categories this season. I mentioned the Astros were the highest scoring offense in baseball. They had the highest batting average of any team in baseball, second highest OPS. The Braves were in the 8 to 12 range in all those categories. Interestingly, though, the Braves actually out-homered the Astros. The Braves finished third in the majors in homers this year. The Astros finished ninth. So again, though, I think the edge certainly goes to the Astros when you look at just the total of everything. Pitching-wise, this is actually what surprised me as I was kind of looking things up, how these teams perform this season. The Astros beat the Braves in ERA, strikeouts, whip, and opponent average. Just thinking about it, you'd think the Braves would have had the edge there over the course of the season with their pitching staff, even with Soroka being hurt and Anderson losing some time. But the Astros actually were ahead of the Braves in all those categories. The one area the Braves have been stronger than the Astros consistently is in the bullpen. Relievers ERA, the Astros had a lot of issues with their bullpen this year, although the Braves did at points too. But what's really changed is the Braves in the postseason, their pitching has been better than the Astros. And the Astros starters had some ugly outings as we talked about. But just looking at it, I went into this kind of thinking, I'm going to pick the Astros, but there's not a high degree of confidence there. I think it's very, very close, 51-49. And seeing that the Astros actually, if you just look at the big picture, they've kind of outperformed the Braves in every category. I'm starting to lean a little heavier Astros. Now, I am going to pick the Astros in six. That said, looking at the season ranks is maybe not the best way to assess these Braves because we've talked about they're a different team since August 1st. And since then, they have been better than the Astros in terms of wins and losses. So I kind of view it like this. For me, I'm going to pick the Astros But if the Braves win, I will not consider it a shock or an upset or something no one saw coming. The Braves are absolutely capable of winning this series. I'm just going to pick the Astros in six. I'm kind of probably with you. I'll say Astros in seven, but you made a point. I just called up the stats on this. If you look, if you said, hey, and again, this is a very crude stat. If I said OPS from... August 1st to the end of the year, the differences between these these two teams is much smaller than it was if you look at the totality of the season. And maybe that's unfair to be picking, you know, the best possible numbers for the Braves. But it's also, that's when this Braves lineup that we're talking about now kind of started to come together. The entirety of this outfield that we're talking about now was not on the Braves team before roughly August 1. And really, they weren't even there because Eddie Rosario wasn't healthy yet to come off of the IL. So this is a lot closer than it looks like if you just look at the totality of the season. And the question I do have is, is the the Astros, now that Luis Garcia has shown he's healthy, are in a better shape pitching-wise than they look like they were in the ALCS. 
But that said, I still do think it is advantage Braves. It's just that this Astros lineup is so good and so deep. And it, the Braves to win this are going to need to do what they did against the Dodgers, which is steal a game here or there. But they are capable of doing that. Again, playing really good defense, timely hitting. The formula to beat the Astros, I think, is the same for the Braves as it was against the Dodgers. There are two X factors here I want to highlight. Two players I think will have an effect on this series that maybe are not among the star-laden guys we're talking about. The first for the Braves is Luke Jackson. He was so, so good all year. Really, really struggled in that NLCS. If they can get him back to what he was during the year when, I mean, the guy had a 1.98 ERA in 71 games, give the Braves just that power right-handed option out of the bullpen to go with those three lefties. I think that will do wonders and really help increase their odds and their chances. And for the Astros, I'm looking at Jose Urquidy, who I think gets lost sometimes in the discussion, but he's the guy who's has World Series experience. He's the guy who not just this year was pretty good, has been pretty good throughout the entirety of his career so far, did not pitch well in game three of the ALCS against the Red Sox, did not appear in the ALDS against the White Sox. So the Astros need him to be a reliable third starter here behind Valdez, behind Garcia, especially with McCullers going to miss the World Series. So for me, he's kind of the X factor for the Astros. Who are the two guys maybe that are under the radar that you're going to be looking at this series? Tyler Madsik under the radar at this point? Because I do I think, don't think so. <laughs> I, I mean, but, but I do think he'll be key in this series because the, the Astros do a good job. You you can't just say, I'm going to, Jordan Alvarez is a, is a hard nut to crack because bringing a lefty in to face him is not like bringing, normally bringing a lefty in to face a, uh, a lefty slugger. He hits lefties really well. But that said, if you are going to try to play that kind of matchup, you need a guy who can also get right-handers out. And Tyler Madsik is a guy who can do, I think, can do that. Um, okay, if I'm going to say that then, I do think that Ian Anderson could be the X factor in the series. I know he's also kind of known, but if the Braves are going to win this, you expect you're going to get something good out of Freed. You expect you're going to get something good out of Morton, who has a lot of playoff postseason experience in recent years. And by the way, has done it for, you know, he, he's, he's kind of the, the link that ties all this together here to play for the Astros before. But, um, but Anderson is better than Urquidy, especially as you just talked about. Urquidy is not pitched to all, all that much. I think that Ian Anderson, depending on how the matchups go, I think Ian Anderson could gives the Braves a really solid third starter, whereas the Astros are probably a little bit shakier there, and that could be an X factor. Could be. We will see. Charlie Morton versus Framber Valdez, game one at Minute Maid Park on Tuesday. I know we're all looking forward to it. JJ and I will continue to do these daily playoff podcast, except for my travel days. So we're going to have uh, lots of coverage of the postseason. I'm working on a story here today, hopefully going to get it out by tomorrow as well, about some of these Latin American Astros pitchers we talked about, how they kind of found them. It's a great time to subscribe to Baseball America. We've got our team top 10 prospects about to roll out starting this week. Head over to baseballamerica.com, subscribe to the magazine. We're getting the prospect handbook started. It's a great time to be a fan of prospects. And we've got it covered wall to wall here at Baseball America. This has been another edition of the BA Playoff Podcast. Go ahead and give us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever platform you're listening on. We'd love to hear from you. For JJ, I'm Kyle. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, everybody. Mm-hmm.